I can't see over there. So y'all seeing the first slide over there? Okay, that's cool. Oh, there we go. Some, all right, got it. So when someone embarrasses us or you know, mocks us, insults us, does some type of wrong against us, maybe they gain some type of position or promotion or some type of praise that we think that we're deserving of, by nature, we have this desire that they would feel the way that that made us feel, that we would put them into that, that place. That's of our carnal flesh that that desire would come about, and especially in the case if, if we know that what they did is wrong. We justifiably could say, they are wrong, I have been wronged. Well, there's this work of literature from a French writer, Alexander Dumas. He wrote The Count of Monte Cristo. And this story certainly speaks to our carnality. Within the story, you have Edmond Dantes, who you see a picture of here. This is later in the story. But when he was 19 years old, he was a hardworking young man that came from humble beginnings. He had great character. And so based upon no privilege that had been given to him by life or any circumstances, he worked his way up and he was about to become captain of a ship. He had no money to marry this beautiful girl who was beautiful on the inside and outside Mercedes. But with this promotion, he was now going to be able to marry Mercedes. Well, he had these so-called friends. One of them, Fernand Mondego, he grew up in privilege. He had everything that money could buy. But he did not have the things that Edmund has because these are things money can't buy, meaning the respect of those you work with and live with and the love of a pure, virtuous woman. Mondego wanted these things. And so he saw an opportunity and he teamed up with the Danglars and they went about this plot to try to show Dantes and they ultimately succeeded as a polit in political treason. And Dantes, of course, was innocent of all such things, but it didn't matter. They had worked out a plan and Dantes was taken away to the prison Chateau d'If, which is a place for political prisoners where they want to take them away and, and then be forgotten about. And that's what happened to Dantes. He had no idea why he was taken there, what had happened, who had wronged him. And for many days, many weeks, many months, seasons, he remained faithful. He had that kind of character. But at some point, he despaired. And it brought about this very unexpected meeting with another prisoner, Abe Faria. And Faria was an intelligent man who came from a background to where he could train Dantes, give him the intellect that he didn't have, train him in the sword, give him reason, help him to understand how he ended up in the prison Chateau D. And through that relationship and ultimately the death of Faria, Dantes got his opportunity to leave the prison. He escaped. And one of the things that he gained in his escape was Faria's treasure on the, uh, the island of Monte Cristo. So he literally swam away to his freedom. He gained this treasure and he saw the treasure as a gift of God. Dantes even went on to say these words. And now, farewell kindness, humanity, and gratitude. Farewell to all the feelings which expand the heart. I have been heaven's substitute to recompense the good. Now the God of vengeance yields to me his power to punish the wicked. He saw the treasure as a gift of God in which he would honor and do good things for those people that had helped him, but he would use the wealth to punish the people who had wronged him. And so he went first about executing his plan to gain intellect, some intel, 
to find out what had been happening all those years while he was in prison. He finds out first that his father had died of grief. And then he really, what really gets him and strikes him, of course, is when he finds out that Mercedes has married Fernand Mondego. And so it hurts him, but he knows that to act rashfully or brashfully, it won't do any good at this point. So his patience about him. And he takes this year, about 10 years, of which he lays out and orchestrates this plan and garners his wealth and he's going to use it strategically. And then he emerges in Rome. And now he's the Count of Monte Cristo. And he intrigues all the elites. He's seemingly all-powerful, unstoppable, and he begins to work his plan one at a time to go about punishing those people that had wronged him. The Dunglars, he uses their greed and their family dysfunction against them, and he ends up draining them down to where they have nothing. And so it's like one person down marks that off the list. And he ultimately works his way, of course, towards Mercedes and Mondego. And so when you, and I won't go through the whole story as far as how he executes the plan, but the point is, you see a story like this, and it's very satisfying to our flesh, to our nature. And people might watch something like this or think these types of thoughts and think, you know, it's justified, right? Just like Edmund thought, this treasure has been given to me by God so that I basically can stand in the place of God. I can be judged. I can decide who gets to be rewarded and who should be punished. And then when we see a story like this where Dumas tidies everything up and makes it nice and clean at the end and makes us feel good about Dantes, then we leave even subconsciously thinking that that's right and that we're justified in life when we take vengeance, especially if we have knowledge of God's word and we can say, you're wrong, I'm right, let me take vengeance. But that's simply not what we learn in the scriptures. And that's where I want to go, you know, to begin things, to Romans chapter 12. Because what Paul teaches the Christians at Rome is completely against our nature. But this is the what we need to train up our hearts and minds with. This is the way that we need to think and act and live, not according to Alexander Dumas' story and the ways of man and their thinking. Paul wrote to them in chapter 12, verse 14, he begins, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Or in other words, give ourselves to humble tasks. Do humble things. Never be wise in our own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Repay no one evil for for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if it's possible, so much as it depends on me, live at peace with all men. And beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then it all culminates. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you come back into the book of Genesis and you think about the story with Jacob and his mother Rebecca and the blessing of the father Isaac about to come upon the children and the way that Rebecca worked with Jacob to deceive Isaac and so that Jacob could receive the blessing 
And we see how distraught this makes Esau. And at that point, he wants to act based upon those feelings of the flesh. And he wants to kill his brother Jacob. Rebecca knows this. Isaac comes to understand this. And so they know that they're going to send him away. Get him away from Esau. Take him back to their people so that he can get a wife from among his people. And so they do. They send him away. And he does. You know, he lives under the authority of Laban. He meets Rachel, and they're married, and 20 years pass, and then it comes time for Jacob to take this family, this now very robust family, and come back. And so Jacob is afraid. He expects that Esau was going to take revenge. And so he, instead of trusting God, because God's the one that's ultimately bringing him back, instead of trusting God, he goes back to his schemes and his deception. And so he has this plan and he orchestrates this plan. And even as they're about to be reunited, this is chapter three of Genesis, Jacob is still scheming. And even as Esau is beginning to approach, he's bowing himself down to the ground seven times until he comes near. But in verse four of chapter 33, we read Esau's response. Esau runs to Jacob and embraces him and falls on his neck and kisses him. And they wept. That's what we're talking about. That's beautiful. That is the better way. Faith and forgiveness. Esau putting aside the wrong that had been done him and loving his brother and his brother's family. This is the better way. And as you continue reading Genesis, this is reinforced through the amazing story of Joseph as well. Now, unfortunately, in the scriptures, there's examples of people taking revenge. You look in uh, Genesis 34 with Simeon and Levi. Their sister is raped and they take it upon themselves to go and avenge against the prince of Shechem and all the people of Shechem. But that does remind us, unlike stories by Alexander Dumas, it reminds us when we choose the path of revenge, we take things into our own hands instead of understanding that vengeance belongs to the Lord, that that creates consequences. There's always consequences. Consequences that bring about turmoil and pain a path wrought with suffering. It's a good reminder for us. But at this point, think about Jesus. Think about God's chosen son. You know, if you come into the book of Mark or the gospel according to Mark in chapter 8, you see that turning point when Peter confesses Christ and says that you are the Christ, verse 29 of chapter 8. And at that point, Jesus begins to tell them and try to help them understand that he was going to suffer from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he was going to be killed, and three days he would rise again. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't accept it, but it happened. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, we read of them testing Jesus and conspiring against Jesus, but all this time, Jesus stayed focused on doing God's will. All these people, and of course Satan behind it all, working against God's Son, and Jesus stays focused. He has faith. He's living according to the better way, the way that his father is talking. Come with me to Matthew chapter 27. Let's step into this part of Jesus' path to the cross, his ability to focus and do God's will. So the part I'm speaking of is after Pilate has released Barabbas and delivered Jesus to be crucified, Jesus was scourged or severely beaten with a multi-lashed whip that had embedded pieces of bone and metal, which literally would have ripped his flesh apart. See the visual here. Body ripped apart. 
You can imagine the pain. But think about the emotional pain as then the soldiers took him away and they took him into the governor's headquarters in a place of privacy and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him, twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and then kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hell, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And then they take the reed from his hand and they slap him in the face with it. Jesus endures this in silence, but in pain and in suffering. And they continue to mock him. And even when they took him from there and took him to be crucified, he can't even get on the cross without this humiliation continuing. As it says that he's derided and mocked and reviled while he hangs from the cross in excruciating pain, a word that was created just for the cross, excruciating out from the cross, hangs in excruciating pain, and yet here he is facing this extreme injustice against his innocence, and yet he stays focused on doing God's will. Matter of fact, Luke records that he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus can stay focused and do God's will. Well, obviously we can, but brethren, obviously vengeance belongs to the Lord and we're not to allow evil like this and Satan works his evil in all different ways and schemes. We have to come into our own lives and see the evil with which he's working, but we cannot allow evil to overcome us and to repay that evil with evil. We have to follow the better way. Overcome evil with good. We have to be able to stop the cycle of evil. Think about it. Whether it's in the home and my spouse disrespects me or it's in the workplace and someone goes behind my back and stabs me in the back or a friend who, who insults me or betrays me in a similar manner or enmity wrongs me, am I going to return evil upon that evil? If I do, when will it ever stop? It's a cycle of evil, which brings me back to Genesis chapter 6. It's exactly what I imagined. The evil being returned for evil and the cycle, and it came to the point where God looked down and he said, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it breathed him to his heart. Now, it wasn't that way with Noah. Noah knew and understood and chose the better way. He was faithful. We obviously can walk in the steps of Noah and, of course, Jesus Christ. We have to be able to do that within our homes, our workplace, with our friends, and even among our enemies so that God will be glorified in our homes, in our workplaces, among our friends, and even among our enemies. People will see our good works. They will see that bright light among the darkness, that city upon a hill, and they will glorify our God, but only if we overcome evil with good. And so I know, though, the question, but how, how can I possibly do that within all the emotion and the desires of my flesh screaming out against me, every fiber of my being wanting to put them in their place. How can I do that? I just told you how Jesus, when we think back 
to Jesus' obedience upon the earth, that is all we need to compel us to become and do as he did. We think to the way that he suffered, but yet he was obedient. Obedient, and we're compelled. We now have the strength to be able to withstand the insults, the humiliation, the embarrassments, embarrassments, the mocking, whatever that might befall us, we can endure those things because Christ did and he is with us. He told the disciples in Matthew 28 that he would be with us until the end of the age. That's how we know that we can fulfill the task that he has given us and that we can overcome evil with good in this life. Jesus is with us and he will be with us until the end of the age. So as we think about the mercy that Jesus has extended us and he extends all that are willing to receive it, we can give mercy. And so I conclude by just reminding us of these just few things that fall into the better way, so to speak. Blessing those who persecute us. Living in harmony with others. And so much as it depends on us, the things that we can control, that we would be at peace with all men, allowing God, trusting God to have his vengeance and to bring about his good in his time according to his ways and not our ways. And being willing to feed our enemy if our enemy is hungry or give drink to our enemy if our enemy is thirsty. To be willing to lower ourselves to that level of humility that we would bless those who persecute us and that we would bless and help our enemy even if they are giving us and putting evil upon us so that finally we will be able to overcome evil with good. And that is the better way. And that is the way that allows us to walk within the way. And we know Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And nobody will come to the Father except through Jesus. We must walk this way. And if there be any among us this morning that wants to walk this way and has not put on Christ, take courage, my friend, and come as we stand and sing.